Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 30 of Everything Compliance, the only roundtable podcast in compliance. Today, we have a special guest sitting in for Jonathan Armstrong, who is on holiday. We have Jonathan Marks, a partner at Markham LLP in Philadelphia. Jonathan's one of the top internal audit practitioners and internal controls and internal investigations practitioners in compliance. And I know you'll enjoy his thoughts today. We also have Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and I get the chance to sit in as Michael Volkoff is off staycationing. We have an interesting set of topics this week. Jay takes a look at the issue of corporate culture as articulated by Jay Clayton, head of the SEC, and Rod Rosenstein, the DAG at the Department of Justice. Matt Kelly talks about Trump risk and how compliance professionals can assist companies in the age where reputational issues can arise literally with one tweet by the president or one administration policy which goes south. Jonathan Marks talks about whistleblowers in the context of the digital realty trust case, and we ask, has it severely damaged internal whistleblower hotline systems? Has it removed retaliation protection from employees who report internally first and go to the SEC? Jonathan talks about how companies can win back employee trust. And then I take a look at the McKinsey ills that have befallen the company in South Africa from the perspective of the New York Times' recent article on it. I think you'll find this is a fascinating roundtable, lots of great discussion, and some great rants at the end. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, back again for another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we have a special guest star on Everything Compliance. We have Jonathan Marks sitting in for Jonathan Armstrong. So, Jonathan, welcome and uh, to your first Everything Compliance. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. So why don't we just jump right into it because we've got a lot to talk about. I thought we would start with uh, Mr. Rosen. And, uh, Jay, I, I noted that over the past uh, few weeks we've had a speech by the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, um, where he talked about corporate culture. We've also had a talk by um, the head of the SEC, Jay Clayton, where he talked about corporate culture. Given this new emphasis by the regulators on corporate culture, where do you see that going within organizations? Where do you see it going in enforcement? And most importantly, how should compliance be uh, uh, dealing with this or responding to it? Well, uh, great questions, Tom, and uh, welcome everybody into uh, Everything Compliance, episode 30. Um, as Tom said, corporate culture is on everybody's mind, and within the past month, Jay Clayton and Rod Rosenstein spoke about it on the conference circuit, and last week, my colleague Matt Kelly addressed it in Radical Compliance, and Joe Mount uh, took a swing at it this last, last week in Compliance Week. So why would the SEC and the DOJ's top regulators be thinking about culture? In Clayton's case, his remarks at the New York Fed were in response to recent matters where Wall Street after traders who were accused about lying about bond prices prevailed in some high-profile court battles against the government. No matter what the law says, misleading clients is never appropriate. Clayton said that the law may not prohibit all forms of lying, but your culture should reject it. 
he also said, if any financial institution thinks of this type of behavior as acceptable or does not require clear and significant action, the financial institution has a cultural pro problem. Clinton spoke about the importance of developing, improving, and reinforcing positive culture in our financial institutions. He shared a recent discussion from the UK Financial Authority, which made the fundamental observation that culture is not optional. In order to effectively manage, preserve, and enhance your, culture, your organization's culture, you need to know your culture. First, to effectively manage the business of your organization on a day-to-day -day basis. And over the long term, management needs to know what the culture of the organization is today, including the key drivers of that culture. Second, over time, whatever the cultural goals are for your organization, the chances of achieving them go up dramatically if you understand where your culture stands relative to those goals. In driving organized culture, it is difficult, if not impossible, to get from point A to B unless you have a clear sense of where A is. Culture is a collection of countless internal and external actions, and while there's great importance in setting a positive tone at the top, an organization's culture is, in large part, defined by the countless daily actions of its people. Culture is not just what is said by management to the workforce, but what is done. What actions are taken day in and day out throughout the organization with colleagues, customers, suppliers, and regulators? Preserving and enhancing culture through a clear and constant mission. The last question is, are we striving to deliver for America's long-term mainstream investors to provide a basis for discussing uh, his next observation? If culture is defined by the collection of countless daily actions taken across organizations, how do you ensure that those actions are consistent with an organization's cultural objectives? There are many familiar methods for communicating, monitoring, and reinforcing cultural objectives. Compliance programs, policies, and procedures, training, personnel decisions, etc. But Clayton believes that all these methods are important in large financial organizations, and then they're actually essential. He also believes that these methods, enhanced by and in fact to be effective over the long term, require a clear, candid, easily understandable articulation of an organization's core mission. So that's his perspective. And if you look at Rod Rosenstein, who on May 21st uh, addressed uh, Compliance Week in D.C., where we all were, um, Rosenstein said that many of the people in the room advise companies and business leaders through difficult corporate decisions. Events like Compliance Week give them an opportunity not only to learn, learn from fellow presenters, but also one another. They can discuss what works and what doesn't and identify compliance risk and best practices. When a company creates and fosters a culture of compliance, it creates value. Compliance is an investment. And compliance should not be treated as separate and distinct from other business goals. A culture of compliance must be fully integrated into corporate culture. Employees should be trained and encouraged to think about compliance issues and making business decisions. When companies come under investigation, the DOJ asks two principal questions about the company's compliance function. First, what was the state of the compliance program at the time of the improper conduct? And second, what is the current state of compliance function after remediation to address the lessons learned? At the same time, 
The DOJ recognizes that even the best compliance program may not stop individual bad actors. Corporate compliance programs are sometimes compared to preventative medicine. It's a good analogy. Getting in an annual physical doesn't mean you won't get sick, but those screenings, just like a robust compliance program, help to ensure the issues will be detected and addressed in an early stage. The DOJ does not only look at a company's past conduct and compliance lapses, but they're also focused on the business health going forward. So basically, compliance is not a one-size-fits-all proposition, but as companies grow, their risk profiles change. If a company uncovers misconduct that occurred despite an otherwise effective compliance program, the FCPA policy tells prosecutors to consider what the company subsequently analyzed as the underlying cause of the problem. A company that properly manages its risk through a robust and appropriate compliance function is one that grows along with the rest of the company and will remain ahead of the curve. This past Monday, Tom spoke about why innovation is required in compliance, and this leads to continuous improvement. In 2012, the SCPA guidance stated, finally, a good compliance program should constantly evolve. A company's business changes over time, as does the environment in which it operates, the nature of its customers, the laws that govern its actions, and the standards of its guiding principles of enforcement industry. In addition, compliance programs that just exist on paper that do not just exist on paper, but are followed in practice, will inevitably uncover compliance weaknesses and enhancements. Both of these statements mean that the DOJ and the SEC expect innovation in your compliance program to keep up with evolving international industry standards. This requires you to implement an innovation strategy. So what do we see this from a compliance perspective is that if you've got the DOJ, the SEC, Matt Kelly, and Tom Fox all talking about culture – we might as well take notice. And what we would recommend from a a compliance officer perspective is that this would be a great time to undertake one of those uh, internal checkups. It could be accomplished by your team internally, or you could bring in somebody who is a outside uh, vendor. If you bring in somebody from outside your organization, you have the benefit of having an independent uh, perspective. And sometimes uh, when you can have someone from outside the business take a look at what you're doing, you're going to get probably a more robust picture of where you're succeeding as well as where you have issues in the compliance function. So in the past, Tom, we've spoken about more about undertaking a proactive compliance assessment differing it from something that would be mandated from the DOJ or the SEC. So I think as people start to have more uh, leisure time as summer comes, and sometimes uh, we are not as busy uh, during the summer months as we are during the beginning of the year in the fall, this might be a great time to undertake your own uh, proactive compliance uh, checkup And as I said, that can either be done internally within your team or going to an outside provider who can give you a more uh, independent and introspective perspective on how your business is running. So, Jay, I have uh, have a question for you. Um, In doing the assessment 
Um, do you advocate a full compliance program assessment or, or given the remarks from both uh, Jay Clayton and Rod Rosenstein, focusing on culture uh, as a way to perhaps respond directly to the regulators? It's a great question, Tom. Um, I think I would almost advocate a measured approach that um, I, I don't know who I quoted saying it, but I think all the parts that you look at when you're taking a look at a comprehensive ethics and compliance program, they eventually build up to the culture of the organization. So I really don't think you can have one without the other. Um, if you were limited in scope and in budget, I might address culture since it is uh, what seems to be top of everybody's mind. But I think the uh, constituent parts of the ethics and compliance and policies and procedure are also worth taking a look at from time to time. So I don't see uh, any other questions for Jay. So uh, let's turn to Matt. Matt, you have written, I would say, fairly extensively about uh, the Trump risk. You started writing about that uh, as far back as 2016 and have continued to do so. Um, and we've had, I think, an evolution of the, of the Trump risk. But I was wondering if you could share with us some of your thoughts on how compliance professionals can help companies in an age where reputational issues can literally arise on one tweet and then maybe tie that into some of the things or, or pronouncements you're seeing coming out of the SEC. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, you know, I have to start this by saying that I have been a paid professional news person since I was 15, decades ago. We'll leave it at that. I have to say this feels like the longest news week I have ever encountered in my whole career because – Five days ago, while it feels like a million years ago, five days ago, the whole country was tearing itself apart over the Trump administration's policy of uh, separating migrant children from their parents. And I was really fascinated about how corporate America, significant chunks of corporate America, really got pulled into some vicious, nasty debates about their role in working with the Trump administration. There were accusations of complicity and cold-heartedness. And uh, at the bottom of it really was these accusations that how could companies professing to be so strong and ethical and moral be working with a third party that is our own government doing things that so many people seem to say were reprehensible. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that Everybody is going to agree that this policy is reprehensible, it should or shouldn't be done, or these criticisms were fair. I am just pointing out this was the debate, and it was really nasty, and it was really pointed. And I started thinking about, number one, how are things getting so ferocious, and number two, how companies are going to have to navigate this. Um, it is worth noting – I'm going to dork out just a little bit here about some – political voter preferences that I think explain why we are in the place we're in today. Uh, it is worth noting that when you look at the numbers, the majority of the country did not support Donald Trump in 2016, does not support the Republican Party, does not support this. At the same time, a majority of the country that you know, does not support Donald Trump, this is the same group that two-thirds of the GDP of this country 
comes from counties in the United States that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. So you have, for various reasons, you know, this frustrated majority that disagrees with the Trump administration that also happens to have the economic power in the United States. They can't channel their frustrations yet at the ballot box, although I suspect that's going to change in November. But so right now, what are they doing? They are wielding the power they do have, which is economic power. And it's putting the United, corporate America in some really difficult places. Because for all of those strains, at the same time, we always have to remember now that we live in a highly organizable society. All you need, if you want to stick it to corporate America, is one really punchy snippet of video and a social media account and a dream, and you are off to the races trying to organize people to challenge the company. And that's what we saw this week. Um, I was especially interested to see that there was one group that started a Google spreadsheet publicly available to everyone that listed all the companies that work with the Trump administration on child separation and then how you find them, who the CEOs are, the phone numbers, the emails, so you can start whipping up the frenzy. How dare you work with these companies? Um, we saw Microsoft and Google and Amazon, which I think is even more difficult for companies, especially in the tech sector, is that your own employees are now saying, we don't want our technologies, which are wonderfully used in many ways, to be used with this particular third party of the Trump administration. Specifically, Microsoft was saying that um, those employees did not want its database services to be working with ICE. Um, and then Amazon, I think, was working on a facial recognition technology for law enforcement, and all of its employees are up in arms. Now, if you're Google or Amazon or Microsoft, and you are really betting your future on new intellectual property and innovation that's coming from the know-how in your employees' heads, like, what are you going to do? You're not going to fire these people because what's in their brains is the future of the company. And if you get rid of them because they're raising hell, uh, they're just going to go and form a new company, and then you've lost your intellectual property. So you're stuck having these very pointed public battles about our ethics living up to um, what you know, you're really doing with third parties. And it is telling because in many ways, if this was a foreign government – employees and companies would all be saying, we're not going to do business with this thuggish authoritarian regime. And a large section of the United States that has a lot of money and has a lot of clout with corporations believes that the thuggish authoritarian regime is the Trump administration. Now, there are people who are going to say, Matt is saying that Trump is, is authoritarian. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. You know, we can have that discussion another day. It doesn't matter what I particularly think. For compliance officers, matters. What does the public think? What do your investors think? What do your consumers, your shareholders and employees think? And a lot of them with a lot of power think that this is wrong and they have a lot of ways to stick it to the company in very uncomfortable manners. And this is not going to go away anytime soon until Trump leaves by whatever means, by whatever election, by whatever indictments or impeachment articles. We can leave that for another day. But until the Trump administration goes away, this is the new normal. And really, while it's child separation this week, it was the Muslim ban uh, 18 months ago when Uber had to basically withdraw from 
uh, the Council of Advisors that Trump was putting together. This is Charlottesville last year, where President Trump waffled on denouncing neo-Nazis, and all the CEOs had to basically abandon the CEO Advisory Council. We've seen this over and over. This week, with the child separation policy, this is the latest thing, but there's going to be more things. Um, I want to also shift gears a little bit, take two more minutes about what else is going on in compliance So we're talking on Friday, June 29th. Yesterday, June 28th, the SEC had a very important substantive meeting trying to push the deregulatory policies that uh, the Trump administration wants. And the SEC has been pinned down on all sorts of other things for a while. But now the chairman, Jay Clayton, finally has the opportunity to act on some of his ambitions. And this is what he's doing. So uh, yesterday... They proposed to expand the number of smaller reporting companies on U.S. capital markets, which would exempt many more companies from a lot of compliance obligations they currently have. Uh, It is a prelude to exempting many of them from SOX 404B compliance, where they get annual audits of their financial controls. Uh, If you are a non-accelerated filer, you don't have to get that. Uh, This is basically a prelude to exempting more companies from 404B. It did not happen just yet. There's no specific rule. These are just proposals laying the groundwork. More is coming. And then they also proposed to cap whistleblower rewards under the SEC's award program at no more than $30 million. It also then expanded the number, the potential for smaller rewards But basically, the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, and the Republican commissioners were saying, we think this is too rigid. Uh, I don't see how it is rigid that there is no upper end cap. Um, It seems to me that rigidity is fixing a cap, but that was the language they used. Uh, So now they're proposing that whistleblower awards would never be more than about $30 million. Um, Again, there's no actual evidence to support any deregulation is going to make companies give them an easier time to going public and the whistleblower caps have nothing to do with ipos or going public but uh, we're going to see more of it that's what's going on this is the first opening salvo and what i think will be probably many months of uh, the sec trying to move forward on on these things at long last so that's what i got for you and uh, there'll be more to come well, Matt, um, I have a question for you, and you I thought you really uh, – it was a great uh, kind of 18-month summary of the crisis we're lurching to, to crisis, and now we're – you know, within each week we have a crisis. And even today I saw that Trump uh, uh, tweeted out that he wanted to pull out of the World Trade Organization. So um, how, how would you even – if, if you had to sit down and advise a company, uh, either at the, the board, CEO, or compliance level, to, to be ready to respond to either something from above, a tweet from Trump, or um, uh, stakeholders, customers, consumers who might uh, be screaming for someone's head because uh, you have a contract with ICE or some well, other part of the government. You know, I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think that, um, you know, I would advise most companies when Trump tweets at you, like, who cares? Because he's going to tweet about somebody else tomorrow. The vast majority of his tweets are not grounded in fact, and a small number of them, I think, are not even grounded in reality. I don't know where he gets some of his stuff. Um, so those are like ephemeral things that you don't necessarily need to worry about that much. Um 
striking that President Trump tweeted once or twice now about Harley Davidson moving jobs overseas because Donald Trump is raising taxes on imports. And Harley Davidson's CEO actually said, publicly said, by name, Donald Trump doesn't know anything about economics. This president is a moron. Close quote, a moron. I was astonished that a CEO would actually say that aloud in public. They all say it in private, but now we're seeing more and more of this. Um, but I think I would be much more concerned about uh, the fire from below of consumers and outside stakeholders slow roasting your company and your brand and reputation over a f the flames of dismay that Donald Trump keeps on fanning here. Um, Hui Chen, the former compliance counsel for the Justice Department, who is a prolific anti-Trump critic, um, she had a very pointed post uh, that said too many ethics and compliance officers now are whistling past the ethics part of the job just to say it's important that we are in compliance with the rules when, in fact, the rules being posed by this – the rules are coming from an unethical, corrupt administration. And so are we just going to pretend that doesn't matter? Uh, she's not wrong to raise these questions, and she really puts ethics and compliance officers on the spot that, like – the word ethics is in the job title for a reason, and she even drew analogies to um, the very compliant behavior that a lot of German businesses did in the 1930s to purge themselves of Jews on their staff and on their payroll. And look what happened by the end of the 30s and the 1940s because nobody stood up on the ethics to say that was wrong. Now, always a loaded metaphor when you bring up the Nazi regime compared to the authoritarianism we see the Trump people trying to push – but there it is. You know, there are some unethical things, that, unethical impulses that are guiding the Trump administration's rules and programs and directives. And so are companies going to stand up and say this isn't in step with the moral principles we have or not? Um, Hui Chen's post is well worth reading. It is uncomfortable, but she's not wrong to bring it up and kick that football into the fairway and see how it goes. So, Jonathan Marks, first of all, uh, welcome to our happy uh, uh, quad group of commentators. Jonathan's a partner at Markham LLP. And uh, Jonathan, I re recently joined the ACFE, and as part of my membership, I get the Fraud Magazine. And when I got my first issue, I opened it to see an article by yourself entitled, Tipsters Not Trusting the System. So, I really wanted to ask view of the Supreme Court's decision in Digital Realty Trust versus Summers severely damaging internal whistleblower hotlines by removing retaliation for protection for employees who report internally first and not to the Securities and Exchange Commission. What, were you, what are your thoughts around how companies can win back trusts on whistleblowers, internal reporting, and uh, hotlines? Well, it's uh, it's certainly an interesting topic, and uh, you know, one that I, I I continuously bang my head against the wall with. But um, you know, hotlines are, are are very interesting, and I think some of the things that uh, you know that Jay brought out and that Matt brought out certainly come into play here. You know, we talk about culture, for example. You know, my my idea of culture and my idea of of how that works within an organization. That and I'll, I'll I'll connect the dots here in a second, but. You know, to me, culture is the bedrock that the governance foundation sits on. And when you have a culture that is unstable, 
and you have an imbalance in governance, then bad things happen because we all know that governance risk and compliance is a waterfall process and you have to have good governance to have good risk, you know, a good risk management. You need just good risk management in order to have, you know, a good compliance program. You know, that all being said, really understanding what the risks are and looking at, you know, digital realty trust, you know, as a San Francisco, California based REIT. Um, and, you know, everyone can read all about it, but you, you know, you're right in your, in your summary there, Tom, where, whereby, you know, they, you know, the SEC has said that, Hey, look, you know, if, if you don't report to us, you're really not protected under Dodd-Frank. You do have some protections under, under Sarbanes-Oxley, but it really forced and, and, and made, um, a lot of compliance officers and a lot of chief audit executives really step back and think about, you know, their hotlines and, you know, their allegations and how the allegations are brought through the system, you know, and, and what's being said to the folks within the organization. And, and again, it really does go back to the whole idea of culture and, you know, what is being said and not only tone from the top, but also conduct from the top, you know, are people witnessing and, and, and really understanding and taking in, you know, what's being done by senior leadership when they do find bad behavior. And so, you know, how do we win them back? Um, you know, to me, it's a pretty simple recipe. You know, when, when somebody does something that either violates company policy or, or is not ethical, there should be some level of punishment. You know, there's, there's a theory that, you know, that some, that some apply and that is, you know, we're really not going to tell everybody, you know, what went on here. You know, we're going to keep our dirty laundry to ourselves. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that that's a bad, um, message to send. I, I think that there are some things that from a sensitivity perspective may not be communicated, but I think that from a, from a, from a, from a practical perspective, in order to really get your hotline to work and win people's trust back in that, you know, it, it's important to follow, you know, the principles, policies, rules, and procedures and, and, and stay within the ethical boundaries of what we have. And then if you do have a concern, that those concerns should be reported. And when they're reported, you know, people take those allegations seriously and triage them appropriately. And so, you know, um, if, if people understand that there is a process and that people are vetting these things properly and there is communication and there's proper communication to the individuals that are reporting these allegations, I think that's really the first step, you know, and, and then, and then if there are issues as a result of this and they do manifest themselves into investigations and bad behavior is uncovered and those people are disciplined, I think in the training and communication that goes out to folks, people need to know that there was issues within our organization. This is how it was dealt with. And here's what we did with them. You know, I, I think too many people are walking on eggshells these days and really not telling folks or, or not acting appropriately in some instances when it comes to really, you know, that transparency part of governance, which is, you know, hey, we need to really let our folks know that bad behavior is not accepted here. Um, you know, um, if you make a bad decision, that's one thing. But when you try to cover it up or try to do something else, that's another. Um, and when it is reported, we do treat these things seriously, like I said. We do, we do triage them. We look at the, every allegation appropriately. And in today's environment, you really, you really have to investigate in some degree, to some degree. You really have to see, you know, what somebody is saying or what a, a group of individuals is saying, you know, whether there is credibility behind that, whether there is, you know, potential bad behavior behind that. And, and like I said, once individuals understand that that process does take place, and I think many don't trust the system, they don't trust the process. And since I'm in Philadelphia, um, I do trust the process here because it has been successful. Um, 
you know, if they, if they do go back to trusting that process and they do believe that from a compliance perspective and from an internal audit perspective and from a legal perspective, that triangulation between, you know, the, you know, general counsel compliance and internal audit, that, that, that is working and that things are being done and, and, and bad behavior is not tolerated and acts are being taken in order to eliminate those bad actors. I think that's really a great first step. So, Jonathan, uh, if I could jump in here, because it really struck me, I was frankly expecting some remarks about uh, focused on uh, the tactical components of your hotline and getting the message out. But you really lay it at the feet of culture and that your hotline is really no better than your corporate culture and that it all uh, rolls up. It starts at the top, but then you roll it down, down through the organization of your culture through through the entire organization. Uh, did I understand that part of your remarks correctly? I think you couldn't have said it any better. And, you know, after I wrote the article, I had a lot of time to reflect on on what I had written. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, pulling in from what I learned from practice into what I'm preaching. Um, and the reason I'm preaching is because I want professionals like myself that are out there to really understand, you know, what, what tools they have in their box in order to conquer, you know, the tasks that are at hand. And I think all too often that's really not the case. I think there's a lot of theory out there, but, you know, that, you know, really, it, it, it truly is just that theory. So what you just said with regard to having that culture and being part of that, you know, being part of the hotline and that integration there, I think that's spot on. Okay. Um, so I'm going to sit in uh, for, um, not replace, but sit in for Mike Volkoff on this one. Uh, this episode, uh, I was extraordinarily struck by a front page article in the New York Times entitled How McKinsey Lost Its Way in South Africa, a uh, uh, multi-page, uh, two jump pages article. I don't know how many words that would be, but by uh, Walt Bogdanik and Michael Forsyth, which detailed in, uh, in, in great scope the problems the uh, consulting firm McKinsey got into around a contract with a state-owned enterprise in South Africa. The state-owned enterprise was Eskom, and uh, they got into trouble uh, for several reasons. But the article uh, spoke about uh, the history of McKinsey, a well-honored consulting firm in America, and how a cultural shift really increased the level of risk and the risk management around that uh, increase in risk uh, either was not forthcoming or it was overridden. And unfortunately, it looks like for McKinsey, uh, both happened in this situation. Uh, The bottom line was that in uh, well, let me just start with this because I was struck by this person, and I think probably everyone will recognize the name Jeff Skilling. Well, Jeff Skilling came out of McKinsey, and in the late '80s, Jeff Skilling was on a committee uh, that uh, McKinsey uh, or was on a, a McKinsey committee looking at whether uh, McKinsey should start taking contingent fee work or what they called at-risk work. And the contingent fee was if they saved the company money, McKinsey would get a part of that. Uh, Jeff Skilling, that well-known ethical um, uh, advocate extraordinaire, was part of the group that said, no, uh, we should not do that because that could influence our uh, 
consulting work and influence our recommendations. Uh, that, that held for about 20 years until 2011, where McKinsey wanted to uh, get into the at-risk types of contracts. The next layer of risk that was overlaid on that was that McKinsey had gone into government consulting in a very big way. Uh, uh, certainly over the years, it had been a uh, consultant to private businesses, public companies and private businesses as well. Uh, and in the public sphere with government work, there's a level of transparency because of the contracts, because of the work, because of the oversight of the public servants who look over government contracts that McKinsey did not fully uh, either appreciate that risk or ignored that risk because the potential benefits were so high. Uh, then we go down to the specifics of the contract. Uh, the con- it turned out that the contract was illegal under South African law. Eskom uh, could not have a at-risk or contingent fee contract, if I can use that lawyer term. Uh, where they would pay out a percentage of any cost savings. Further, under South African law, a minority business partner or minority-owned business, uh, what South Africa terms is a BEE, Black Enterprise, uh, must be uh, utilized in any contract with a state-owned enterprise or a government agency. Uh, it's not clear how McKinsey selected its uh, BEE partner, but it was a company called Trillion, and Trillion uh, turned out to be owned by people who were close to the Gupta family. And the Gupta family is the uh, former family in South Africa charged with a wide variety of corruption uh, together with the former uh, regime and administration in South Africa under Jacob Zuma. So we have a third party uh, owned by a person known to have engaged in, uh, if not outright corruption, certainly nefarious acts and is close to the Gupta family. Further, we had another risk factor where the contract between Trillion, the subcontractor, and McKinsey allowed for payment directly to uh, Trillion in an offshore bank account. So if there's a red flag to be waved, I don't think Jonathan uh, Marks could tell us there's a much more bigger one than uh, when you pay directly to a, a subcontractor without going through your normal processes, and then you pay to an offshore location where the work is not performed. So we have a series of steps, of cultural steps, made by McKinsey to move to public sector work, to move to at-risk contracts. You overlay that with a corrupt uh, government, a corrupt state-owned enterprise, and a corrupt third party uh, who uh, McKinsey contracts with. Previous articles had indicated that the third party was approved for McKinsey work without uh, significant due diligence, at least enough to uncover who the ultimate beneficial owners were. It was clear from the article that McKinsey never figured out who the ultimate beneficial owners were. It was the um, South African press who uh, were able to ascertain that it was owned by a family member of the um, Guptas. All of this has just been a disaster for McKinsey and a huge reputational hit. Uh, They basically have lost all of their work or certainly the bigger chunk of their work in South Africa. The um, company or the entity Corruption Watch, the advocacy group, has referred its investigation to the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission for potential violations of the FCPA. It's not known at this point whether uh, 
McKinsey is actually under investigation. They declined to comment as well, did the DOJ. Several large companies, I said, uh, in South Africa have uh, uh, ended their business relationships with McKinsey. Uh, McKinsey's worldwide partnership has been asked to repay the amount of money they made, which was $60 million of $100 million paid. $40 million of that was paid to Trillion, the subcontractor. And then uh, what I've been saving, though, is the final risk for the end, because I found it a fascinating consideration of risk. It was pointed out several times in the article that, that uh, McKinsey, McKinsey partners literally across the globe had unease at this risk. And the risk was that they were going to make too much money. And so what I asked the listener to consider, is that something that you have on your risk profile? If you're going to make such a large profit that uh, it's not simply unseemly, but it may be something beyond that. When you overlay that amount of risk without uh, the risk management techniques that were not either were not in place or were overridden, and add the factor of a government contract where it's going to be disclosed, it's going to be known, it's going to be found out uh, because that's the nature of public sector or public service work. Uh, when you have a government contract, that contract is going to be uh, shown the light of day. Uh, McKenzie tried to uh, keep that amount of profit hidden, but they were not successful. The contract was discovered. And so they've taken literally a huge reputational risk hit over a risk that perhaps many compliance practitioners are not considering. How much money are you making? So a series of steps you see from the article, the, the series of missteps that McKinsey made, you see how the culture changed to allow a greater acceptance of risk without the corresponding risk management techniques or risk management strategies, I should say. And uh, when your name is on the front page of the New York Times, uh, that is never going to be good for your reputation. So I found it a fascinating exploration of, frankly, many of the things that you guys talked about in your sessions. And, uh, and it's really why I wanted to end with this. It really seemed to me to be uh, bringing it all together. So I don't know if anyone has uh, any questions from that or uh, we're ready to go to rants. But uh, anybody want to raise their hand with a question? Okay, well, now let's get to the rants, and we're going to go with the same order. We'll start with you, Mr. Rosen, then off to Matt, then uh, Jonathan Marks, uh, always good for a rant, whether it's uh, on air, online, or not, and then I will end up with a few words. So, Jay Rosen, you got a rant for us? I do, but it's uh, it's, it's kind of a weak ramp, rant in terms of how rants go. Uh, this week, uh, as people might have read on LinkedIn, I'm in the Boston area. Uh, Tom Fox put together um, a great uh, breakfast at Affiliated Monitors on Monday morning. And I've spent the week out here because my mom is uh, recuperating from uh, knee surgery. And, and my rant uh, is on... Uh, something that Tom deals with all the time in Texas, which is humidity. And uh, being the pampered <laughs> Southern California, who is used to having it 110 degrees in the shade, but a dry heat, this rain and this humidity is driving me crazy. And it's a good thing I've got a crew cut, because if I had my uh, longer, curlier fro from the 80s, it would just be acting up because of the humidity. So that's my uh, my rant against Boston and its current weather. Well, uh, you're right. Coming from Texas, uh, 
I found that to be uh, an interesting rant. Matt Kelly, are you going to rant about the weather, or do you have something else in mind? Well, before I rant about uh, something else, I did actually want to thank Jay for visiting Boston from his current residence in Los Angeles, because, Jay, I did note that you brought the L.A. Angels with you who played the Red Sox all this week and who stunk all three games, and the Red Sox (laughs) swept them with, I think, a grand total score of 45 to 10 over the course of three games, which is very much appreciated before the Red Sox, as always, I'm sure, will stink out in September and end in third or fourth place in the AL East. Um, But my rant, actually, I do want to circle back to uh, what President Trump said about Harley Davidson this week. Uh, You know, first off, the the very notion that uh, you would be raising taxes on imported materials and components or whatnot, that is bad economics. Uh, If I were a compliance officer, and I I posted about this the other week, I looked at uh, the majority of, I think I looked at the S&P 500 or maybe about 1,800 or so companies. I, I can't remember exactly, but I did a study the other week looking at the cost of goods and the cost of sales, general, and administrative expenses for companies these days. And at a lot of large companies, those prices are now rising faster than your overall revenues. And so when we talk about tariffs and import taxes, and we have a tight labor market already, uh, these things, these line items are going to rise quickly. And uh, they are may very well start to harm companies' ability to keep growing profits. If I were a compliance officer, I might ask a little bit about what is my company's financial situation if we stumble into a trade war? Are we going to wind up at our own organization with uh, suddenly a decline in profit growth, a decline in profits? Is my budget going to be cut? How might that look? It's been a long time since this company has had a recession now. It's been 10 years. Um, A lot of compliance officers might not necessarily remember how to manage a budget in tough times because uh, we haven't had the financial crisis since 10 years ago now. Uh, And what Donald Trump is doing is making things, I think, potentially worse for a lot of companies. That said, I wanted to single out what the president said about Harley-Davidson this week specifically, where Harley-Davidson, facing all of these steel tariffs, said that economically it makes sense for us now to move some of our jobs to Europe. And the president said, if you do that, we are going to raise taxes on you. Don't get cute with us. That was the phrase that the president used to Harley Davidson. And I just want to say that when the president starts talking about strong arming businesses to behave in certain ways, we're otherwise just going to enforce upon you and tax upon you. That's like the stuff that President Maduro says in Venezuela. And this should not be said in the United States. It is ridiculous that we are stumbling into this trade war. It is an entirely counterproductive idea economically. Um, Compliance officers think all the time about anti-corruption risks. What are those risks? Well, that is somebody paying a government official a bribe. Why are you dealing with the government official in the first place? Because there's some sort of trade restriction or rule at the other end. If you are a compliance officer, you want free trade. Free trade means less interaction with the government, means less opportunity for improper payments, means less FCPA risk. And the president in our country, President Trump, he is just dancing along to a tune that makes absolutely no sense. 
And when his proclamations uh, defy economic common sense and companies respond the right way by moving jobs overseas, by automating or anything else that they would very naturally do when you raise taxes. Uh, and now here he is saying we're going to raise taxes even more and beatings will continue until morale improves. If I wanted that kind of stuff, I'd move down to Caracas. Um, this is ridiculous what the president is doing and saying no compliance officer should be in favor of it. On your your own self-interest, just as a compliance officer looking for a budget and just as part of a large corporation, this president's trade policy is out to lunch. And that's all I have to say. So, Jonathan Marks, we've heard about the weather. We've heard about uh, trade policy going out to lunch. Uh, what do you have for us? I actually have um, a pretty serious rant for today. Um, not that the other ones weren't serious. But um, I spoke in February in, a, in front of a group of 150 people and I asked a very simple question. Can you tell me what a control is? And believe me when I tell you that not 150 out of 150 raised their hands and not 150 out of 150 can give me an answer what a control was. I started to, started to think about this a little bit more. So I kept asking questions. Tom, you mentioned you joined the ACFB. I had the pleasure and the honor of speaking last week in Las Vegas at the ACFB's Global Fraud Conference. And um, one of the things I spoke about was management's override of internal controls. And um, I followed down that path a little bit, not only from a control perspective, but I actually asked a group, I'm going to guess there was probably about 300 people in the audience, if they can give me a definition of ethics. And the replies that I got back were, um, alarming to say the least. And I started to think even more after I left the conference. And it, it's amazing to me that we have folks out there that are supposed to be in the compliance and in the internal audit world. They can't simply, um, they, they don't understand the, the, the foundations and the blocking and tackling of, of what a control is or what, um, ethics really means. And, and, and I'm very, very, very concerned. I actually did lob a phone call into Richard Chambers at the IIA um, right after I came back from my first talk in February, and he agreed with me. Um, and I'm not speaking for him in any stretch of the by any stretch of the imagination, but he agreed that we have a lot of work to do from a blocking and tackling perspective. So, you know, my, my rant is is that you know what are we doing uh, about this? You know, what are we doing? Are we so focused on actually training people on what you know? rules and policies and procedures that we have and the people that are training these people don't even fundamentally understand what an internal control is, how to design it, what it looks like, what it might be, what the objectives might be, or even don't really know what ethics truly is, what the definitions of ethics are. So to me, that's extremely alarming, and I grow more concerned as the days go by. So I want to rant on the SEC announcement on the right to uh, – around whistleblower bounties and whistleblower protection. Uh, I think the um, cutting of the bounties will probably garner the greatest amount of publicity. And uh, Kevin LaCroix uh, was quoted by Francine McKenna in Market Watch as saying um, he didn't see the logic on the lim limit of any awards there is no cap on awards to tax fraud whistleblowers. There's no cap on award to key TAM recoveries and false claims act and ended up by asking the question of why should there be a cap on 
securities fraud, whistleblower recoveries, uh, all good points. But I think buried in the, uh, if I could even use Jonathan's phrase, blocking and tackling part of the announcement was something that I think is going to be much more detrimental to the whistleblower initiative. And that is the proposed guidance requires that for a bounty to be paid, a whistleblower's, quote, independent analysis, end quote, must provide insight beyond what would be reasonably apparent to the commission from publicly available information. So now we have whistleblowers and their lawyers who have to perform an independent analysis. And the whole point of the whistleblower program was to get information to the true experts, Securities and Exchange Commission. But now hold the phone. You have to perform an independent analysis of the evidence. You have to present that independent analysis uh, to the SEC. So if you want to think about the ultimate whistleblower, Harvey Markopoulos, uh, he did about as an independent analysis as one can independently analyze Bernie Madoff. And that got him nowhere. And it got the country nowhere. And it got the SEC nowhere. So um, this seems to me to be a very large backdoor or even garage door to drive through the cutting of the whistleblower program and will certainly make it more difficult and um, perhaps uh, less effective. So uh, that's my rant. Uh, gentlemen, as always, this has been a, a fabulous uh, podcast recording. Special thanks to Jonathan Marks for joining us from Philadelphia. I hope we uh, have the chance to have you back again, Jonathan. So uh, thanks to everyone. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance. And if you have not list, left us a review on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do so and was it help in, as it would help in our rankings and help us get the word out about this most unique podcast. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Everything Compliance very soon. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.